Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 494 for the 22nd of May, 2016. This week, after seven months with a Surface Pro tablet, I can recommend it, but perhaps not quite as enthusiastically as Microsoft would like. If you're a reader who likes to read books on a tablet and you also like to save money and read work by new authors, I have a suggestion. In short circuits, why can't girls write code? Actually, they can, and Girls Who Code has just released several YouTube videos aimed at destroying myths and stereotypes. GoDaddy is acquiring Freedom Voice and will soon be in the telephone business. Will Microsoft's evil never end? The company clarifies its Windows 10 policies and is immediately accused of being sneaky. In spare parts, only on the website, a new app lets you turn your smartphone into a Wi-Fi hotspot. LinkedIn says the breach that occurred four years ago allowed crooks to harvest 100 million more usernames and hashed passwords than previously thought. And how big should a flat panel display be in a classroom? Or should schools be using something else entirely? Last October, you may have heard or read my initial report on Microsoft's Surface 4 tablet. As I recall, the article indicated cautious optimism. A problem with the Intel video subsystem and Intel video drivers created problems for a lot of people, and it has created a glut of reconditioned Surface 4 tablets. Maybe you've seen them on Woot or Groupon or any number of other retail sites and wondered if you should buy one. The problems users have experienced had little or nothing to do with the hardware or the operating system. Instead, it was Intel's buggy video drivers and drivers for some of the peripherals, such as the docking station. And some of the problems dated back to the Surface 2. As of late April, firmware and driver updates seem to have resolved the video problems. And truth be told, most of the time the video problems were relatively minor. Typically, a message would pop up with an explanation that the video driver had stopped working. The tablet would then restart the video driver, and in most cases, no work was lost, and the delay was only a few seconds. That was true for most people, most of the time. But still, it was frustrating, particularly for those who bought the high-end Surface tablets or Surface Book notebook computers. At the high-end, some of those approach or exceed $3,000. Mine is a lot more modest. It's a handy device, not critical to my daily workflow, so I was considerably more laid back about finding a solution to the problem. It's still not perfect, but I knew better than to expect perfection. Occasionally, the keyboard stops responding. Easy fix. Detach the keyboard and reattach it. This takes somewhere between three and five seconds. Another minor irritant, but that's about all. Microsoft sells the keyboard, which also acts as a protective cover for the screen, as an add-on. I think that's wrong. It should simply be included. And yes, that would increase the price by about $200. But you need a keyboard, because Microsoft's on-screen virtual keyboard 
is useless, virtually and actually. You may think it sounds like I don't like the Surface Pro, but I do. By way of history, when the original Surface started shipping, I thought it had a lot of promise, but I didn't buy one. The Surface 2 looked better, but waiting seemed like a better idea. I nearly bought a Surface 3, so when the Surface 4 was released with some impressive specifications, it took me less than a week to decide that the time had come. You have a choice of Intel processors, M3, i5, or i7. If you need to do a lot of photo or video editing, choose the i7. Otherwise, save a bundle of cash and go with the i5, which is powerful enough to do just about anything you'll need to do with a notebook or tablet computer. I didn't even consider the M3. I picked a mid-range, solid-state drive instead of shelling out a lot to buy half a terabyte or a full terabyte of space that really isn't needed on a portable device. I can move files on and off the surface at any time. And there's a slot for a micro SD card so I can add storage space easily and swap it out as needed. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth are built in, and the wireless adapter handles A, B, G, and N variants of the 802.11 protocol. Memory ranges from 4 to 16 gigabytes of RAM. There's a full-sized USB 3 port. You can add more with a docking station. There's a 5-megapixel front-facing camera, an 8-megapixel rear-facing camera. Oh, and those tiny built-in speakers are phenomenal. I have become so used to having a touch screen on the Surface, on my smartphone, on an Android tablet. They all have touch screens. When I tried to sign up at the Red Cross last week, the receptionist had to remind me that the computer didn't have a touch screen and that I'd have to use the mouse. I had already realized that and was reaching for the mouse at the time, but I suspect it is not uncommon for people to try logging in by tapping on the screen. And speaking of touchscreens, the Surface Pro takes advantage of its touchscreen interface when used as a tablet. With the keyboard attachment, which has a built-in touchpad, it's more like a standard notebook. I use a Bluetooth mouse, but you can also use a USB mouse if you prefer. The Surface Pen makes freehand note-taking possible, but I haven't made much use of the pen. At least, not yet. Surface tablets are popular with corporations, too, particularly for employees who have to travel a lot. Remember when portable computers weighed 10 pounds or more? The early ones were a lot more than 10 pounds. A full-size power notebook can still weigh in at 5 or 6 pounds. That doesn't seem like much until you have to carry it with all your other carry-on stuff, from gate 001 to gate ZZZ at an airport. It's popular with travelers because the surface weighs about 2 pounds. The hybrid design is becoming increasingly popular. Several other manufacturers are making surface-like devices. So after seven months of using a Surface tablet for at least a few tasks every day, I am generally impressed. Reading has changed a lot in the past few years. Libraries now loan electronic books in addition to physical books. Some bookstores sell ebooks and Amazon, of course. But now there's BookBub, a service that runs one day sales on ebooks. Some of them are even offered for free. Free is a very good price, 
The books offered for free are often first books by new authors. Sometimes the books are several years old, though, and they're on the publisher's backlist. This week, I picked up a copy of Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream by Doris Kearns Goodwin. I had previously read and enjoyed her book about Lincoln, Team of Rivals. The Kindle version was available for $3. BookBub sends daily email alerts that describe available books that match the recipient's interests. It's a free service. It supports all major ebook readers such as Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple's iBooks, and Kobo. What's in it for authors and publishers, you are perhaps wondering? Well, promotion. Publishers and authors can reasonably consider the reduced price or free books as advertising, as a way to build word-of-mouth support for their books. During the sign-up process, subscribers provide their email address and fill out a form that indicates their favorite ebook genres and retailers. Daily emails list books that fit those preferences. Clicking a link in the email opens the retailer's website where the reader can buy the book at the reduced price or, in some cases, download it for free. From cookbooks and mysteries to children's books and biographies, BookBub lists nearly 30 genres. According to BookBub, publishers and authors submit hundreds of ebook deals every day for consideration. BookBub's editorial team reviews the submissions to determine which should be offered to subscribers, and about 80% of the submissions are not accepted. BookBub charges publishers and authors a fee to be included in the daily email. In short circuits, occasionally I read a juvenile fiction book. One that I'm reading now features a young woman about 18 who is a computer coding wizard. And this seems particularly reasonable, at least to this grumpy old guy. But there's still a general belief that girls don't code. Girls Who Code is trying to destroy stereotypes in computer science and it has released what it terms a series of videos that present absurd theories why girls can't code. Girls Who Code is a non-profit organization that wants to eliminate the gender gap in technology. The videos satirize stereotypes and address reasons why women are underrepresented in computer science. Videos point to ridiculous reasons. For example, they have boobs, they have periods, or they're beautiful. The videos are intended to stimulate thought and conversation about how silly these unconscious biases are. You'll find one example on the TechBinder Worldwide website and links to two of the other videos. Women represent only about 20% of computer science graduates. The group says the gender gap starts in adolescence when teenage girls rank computing and engineering as some of the least interesting professions. Several studies cite negative stereotypes and media portrayals of coders as nerdy and male as the top reasons why women lose interest. The founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, Rashma Sajani, says that many inspirational videos about why girls should code already exist. She wanted to take a different approach. We wanted to use humor and satire to question the stereotypes that tell our girls that coding is not for them. So Johnny says she hopes the videos will spark a conversation about the messages that society sends to young women. 
and she says what we can do to create a more inclusive, well-rounded image of a programmer. In addition to the satirical videos, Girls Who Code has also released a YouTube series called My Code about learning how to code from the perspective of four Girls Who Code alumni. The weekly series is updated every Thursday on YouTube. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you'd like more information about the group itself, you're right, there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website for that, too. been a long time since domain registrar GoDaddy was just a domain registrar. The company provides website hosting, email services, and a variety of other services intended for small business users. Next up, telephone service. GoDaddy plans to purchase Freedom Voice for $42 million in cash, plus up to $5 million in potential future payments. The company notes that more than 210 million small businesses exist globally, and most rely on mobile or desktop phones to communicate with their customers. The acquisition will allow GoDaddy to provide what they call another essential service for small businesses and organizations to create and maintain their digital identity. Freedom Voice offers communication services for small businesses, including custom phone numbers, both local and toll-free. These numbers route the business-related calls to a user's mobile phone. Chief Product Officer Stephen Aldrich says that many of the company's 14 million customers have struggled to find affordable communications services. Aldrich says Freedom Voice will fit well with GoDaddy because both companies strive to harness the power of the cloud to deliver products that fit the needs of small businesses. Freedom Voice products will continue to be available online and through partners. GoDaddy and Freedom Voice plan to deliver new cloud-based voice products in the near future. The company will continue to maintain its offices in Ensenatus, California. On the evil Microsoft. Sometimes it seems that people who write about technology are crazy, or stupid, or rabid, maybe all three. Some have an irrational dislike for Apple. Others are terrified by Linux. And some just simply can't bring themselves to admit Microsoft has ever done anything right. Case in point, Microsoft's latest attempt to upgrade Windows 7 and 8.1 systems to Windows 10 for free. On the current agenda, we have CNET's question, did Windows 10 upgrade pop-ups just get sneakier? We also have NeoWin's supposed picture of an outraged Windows user, although the picture looks more like he's delighted than outraged, at least to me. What is all this brouhaha about? It's about this. A message that says, 
Windows 10 is a recommended update for this PC. Based on your Windows update settings, this PC is scheduled to upgrade on a specific date and a specific time. Click here to change the upgrade schedule or cancel the scheduled upgrade. So Microsoft is announcing a specific date and time when the user's computer will be upgraded for free to Windows 10. And if you don't want the upgrade, well, right there it is, a link that you can click to change the time or cancel it entirely. How is this sneaky? I just don't get it. And check the TechBiter Worldwide website to see an example of Neowin's approach to the story. Check out that picture of the outraged user. Okay, it's clear that this is a stock image, but you'd think that Neowin would work a little harder to find a picture that really shows someone who is outraged if they want that to be the story. The expression is anything but that. At least Neowin is honest enough to say, at first glance, this looks scary, but it doesn't really appear that much has changed except for keeping users a bit more informed. As I noted previously, Windows 10 is already a recommended update. So assuming you have set recommended updates to automatically install, this is simply providing you with the time that it's going to happen. And what did CNET have to say? It asks, did Windows 10 upgrade pop-ups just get sneakier? That's just plain silly. It's like supermarket tabloid headlines that wonder if Elvis is really still alive and working in a Michigan convenience store, and then by the end of the article admits that the premise is little more than BS. Even CNET readers pushed back, asking how a clear announcement can be sneaky. What'll be next? As you know, the free upgrade period ends in a few months. After that, anyone who wants an upgrade to Windows 7 or 8.1 computers to Windows 10 will have to pay for that upgrade. I'm willing to bet that most of the Microsoft haters will be back in full force then to claim that sneaky old Microsoft wasn't clear enough about when the free upgrade period would end. Anyway, if you really, really, really don't want to upgrade to Windows 10, Microsoft has a knowledge base article on the subject. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And also on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and only on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find spare parts. This week, a new app lets you turn your smartphone into a Wi-Fi hotspot, LinkedIn says the breach that occurred four years ago allowed crooks to harvest 100 million more usernames and hashed passwords than previously thought. And how big should a flat panel display be in a classroom? Or should schools be using something else entirely? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.